All right. Well, it's good to be with you guys today. Um, man, thank you so much for fighting the rain on this beautiful Sunday morning in Austin, Texas, and joining us here at uh, the Austin Stone. I want to say hi to our campuses that are meeting right now all over the city of Austin. We're so thankful that you've joined us today in this uh, pretty, pretty nasty weather. But we're continuing through our series that we're calling um, We Are the Austin Stone. <clears throat> and what we're doing is we're looking at kind of the four foundational statements that make up who we are as a church. If you ever wondered what we're about as a church, why we do what we do, this is it. Everything we do as a church can find its reasoning and its foundation in these four statements. And so far we've talked about how we're a church that loves God. <clears throat> in other words, we're a church that puts our love for Jesus Christ first and as the foundation of everything else that we do. And that was kind of the first week of the series. And last week we talked about how we're uh, people that are going to love the local church. We talked about how it's not enough just to say you love God, but not love his bride, the church. That we're going to be a church that loves and serves the church. And today what we're going to look at is we're going to talk about our call <clears throat> of loving the city. And we're going to be a church that loves our city, that we're going to not just receive the love of God for ourselves, but we're going to demonstrate God's love to people that don't yet know him in our city, the greater Austin area. So listen, I want to talk for a little bit historically about how churches respond to their city, because there's four basic ways that churches engage with the city that they find themselves in. Now, the first category of churches and how they respond to their city, I call this Churches that are simply in their city. They're just in the city. And, and these are churches that maybe they have a building or they rent a building and they have worship services and they have programs for their members, but they have very little impact beyond the four walls of their church. They have very little impact in their city. And these are, these are churches that if they it stopped existing, if they, if they closed their doors, the city wouldn't even care. The city would not even really notice. And the vast majority of churches fall in this category. They're just churches that are in the city. <clears throat> Another category, and thankfully um, there are less and less of these today in our society, but the other kind of category of churches that are what I would say are against the city. And these are churches that kind of have an us versus them mentality. They sit kind of up on, on a hill looking down with disdain on the city that the city's bad and the church is good. You know, the people of the church are righteous and the city is evil, right? And this, these are churches that are actually against their city. <clears throat> and then other churches, I'd categorize them like this, that they're churches that are with their city. And I talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago when we talked about making Christ our first love. Jesus spoke to the church in Nicolaitan. Well, uh, this would be a church that was with their city church that had bit so far to the culture in an effort to reach the culture that they stopped being salt and light in the culture. These are churches that are trying so desperately to be cool and culturally relevant that they lost their ability to speak prophetically into the culture um, for the name and the purpose of Jesus Christ. These are churches that are with the city. And then the final category, the last category, and I believe this is the most healthy Excuse me, these are churches that are not just in the city. These are not churches that are against the city and they're not with the city, but these are churches that are for the city, that are for the city. And um, churches that are for the city are churches that hold fast to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ as their most important name, but they also engage in the city for the good of their city in order through, the, through that engagement to lift high the name of Jesus Christ. And here at the Austin Stone, here at the Austin Stone, that is the kind of church that we are endeavoring to be. We want to be a church that doesn't just um, speak about the name and the love of Jesus Christ, but we want to demonstrate to our city and to the world the name and love of Jesus Christ so that people would know him. Now, what I want to do today with this message is, is I just want to walk through very quickly kind of five influences that have led us to be a church that is for our city. We've been doing this for a while now. We, we went through a series in 2008 where we talked about this, where we called our church to be a church for the city. One of our campuses in 
in the St. John's neighborhood is called the For the City Center. There's nonprofits that meet there all throughout the week. We don't really even use that building that much. And then we go in there on Sundays. Um, but this, this message, this heartbeat of being for the city really has five foundations. Four of them are biblical, and one of them is historical, and I want to walk through those quickly today. And so turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. If you have a Bible, if you don't, that's cool. We'll have the scriptures behind me on the screen. <clears throat> but the first kind of biblical foundation or um, kind of, you know, what we're talking about, influence of us being a church for the city is found in Jeremiah 29 in the Old Testament. So let's read this together, Jeremiah 29, chapter 1. And this is the context here. The people of Israel have been taken into exile by King Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon. And so they find themselves in exile in this foreign pagan country, and then God speaks to them, and he talks to them about how he wants them to act and how he wants them to live their lives in this kind of pagan, foreign city and culture. <clears throat> All right, here we go, verse 1. He says, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, so it's like I said, God's people, they're not in Jerusalem anymore. Nebuchadnezzar has sacked the city of Jerusalem. He's taken all the people and they're now living in exile kind of as slaves in Babylon. Now I would imagine... As you could imagine, that most of the people that were in that situation, that were no longer in their hometown, they're no longer in their home country, they're living in exile, they're probably looking at that situation pretty negatively. And I would imagine that many of them are thinking to yourself, thinking to themselves, you know what, this stinks. This, this stinks. And so what we're going to do is we're going to be against the city. These, these people took us uh, captive. We're, we're basically slaves to them for crying out loud, and so we're going to do everything we can to be a problem to this city, and, and who would blame them if they did that? Now, there were probably others that were more, more godly, and, and they, they probably realized and were probably thinking, hey, we, we don't need to just be against these people. We represent God. We represent Yahweh, so we're not going to be against them, but at very best, we're just going to be in this city. We're, we're, we're captives here, and so we're just gonna we're gonna lay low. We're gonna keep our heads down. We're gonna mind our own business and pretty much become invisible. And again, who would blame them if they did that? But the prophet Isaiah, or rather, God speaks through the prophet Isaiah to the people, and He calls them. Hear this: He calls them to take a radically different approach to their engagement with the city. All right, now listen to this: Jeremiah twenty nine four. He says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, all the exiles who I'm sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, watch what he says in verse 5, watch what he tells them to do. He says, I want you to build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage <clears throat> that they may bear sons and daughters. He says, multiply there. And do not decrease. So God says, look, I don't want you to be against this city that's taken you into captive. And I don't even want you to just go in and hang out in this, this place that's taken you captive. He says, I want you to go into the city and I want you to engage in the city in a positive way. He says, build houses there. Plant gardens. Uh, eat its produce. Get married. Give your children and daughters in marriage. And then he kind of ends that part and he says, I don't want you to decrease in that city. I want you to increase in that city. Now, that right there would have been radical enough if God just said, hey, you've been taken into slavery basically and I, just, I want you to be good citizens. That would have been radical enough, but that's not all God says to them. He's gonna tell them something in the next verse and he's gonna tell them to take their engagement into this foreign pagan city to a whole nother level. Watch what he says. Let's read uh, uh, verse six again one more time. He says, take wives and have sons and daughters Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. And then look at verse 7. <clears throat> he says, but seek the welfare of the city that I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. Let me read it again. God says, seek the welfare of this city. Seek the welfare of the city that I have sent you into exile. 
God says, listen, my people, I don't want you to go in the city. We're not going to be against them. We're not just going to be in it. We're not going to just build houses and live our lives. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into this city that has taken you captive, that has made you slaves, and I want you to go, and I want you to seek, and I want you to pursue and go after this city's welfare. Now, the, the key to understanding what God is asking in there is to understand what the word welfare means. That word welfare comes from the Hebrew word shalom, and it's a word that's often translated as peace, but it's a, it's a Hebrew word that means this, and this is critical to hear this. It's a word that means universal flourishing. It's a word that means holistic flourishing. God tells his people, look, this city, this group of people, King Nebuchadnezzar, they've, they've taken you captive, they've made you slaves, but while you are there, I want you to seek the universal flourishing of the city that's taken you captive. Now, <clears throat> what he's saying there is basically this that I want you to seek the flourishing and the welfare of every aspect of the city that you're in. In other words, it would have made all kind of sense if God said, hey, you know, these people have taken you captive, so I want you to seek their spiritual flourishing. That would have made sense. These people are a, a, a pagan culture. They don't know God. They don't know Yahweh. So it would have made all the sense in the world for God said to his people, hey, go tell them about me. But that's not what he says. He says, I want you to seek their shalom. I want you to seek the universal flourishing of the city, which means that he wants them to seek their economic flourishing. He wants them to seek the, the academic flourishing of the city that's taken them captive. He's saying, I want you to, to seek the artistic flourishing of this city that's taken you captive. He's saying, I want you, I want you to seek the racial flourishing of these people that have taken you captive. He's saying, I want you to seek the social flourishing of these people that have taken you captive. He's saying, do not decrease, do not disappear, do not be against them, but seek the holistic flourishing of the city that I have sent you in. And then, in the next verse, he tells them why. He says, here's why I want you to do this. So look at verse seven. He says, so seek the welfare or holistic flourishing of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on their behalf. So he's saying, while you're there, God says, I actually want you to pray for your city. Austin Stone, when's the last time you've done that? I, was, I got convicted about that today. I'm a pastor, and I, I probably do it more than most people, because it's kind of what I'm called to do, to reach the city. But I'm wondering, when's the last time that you actually prayed for the city of Austin? That's something we're called to do. God says, I want you to pray to the Lord on the city's behalf. And then he says, why? He says, for in its welfare... You'll find welfare. God says, here's, here's what I want you to know, that when you as a people are seeking the flourishing of your city, when you're seeking the holistic development and, and peace of your city, then you also are going to find peace itself. When you're a blessing to this pagan city, then they're going to be a blessing to you. Then you're going to find blessing there. And so that's kind of, the, that was when we read that, that was one of the first biblical foundations where we realized, look, we don't want to just be in the city of Austin. But we want to seek the flourishing of the city of Austin because God says there's blessing there for, for his people. Okay? Now, here's the second one. I want you to turn to the book of Amos, chapter 4. Amos, chapter 4. I found this. I was on sabbatical years ago, I think 2007, and I was reading through the Old Testament, kind of cover to cover. I'd never done that. And I was stunned at how often God in the Old Testament talks about caring for the widow and the orphan and the poor and the least of these. It's a theme in the Old Testament that I was not taught much growing up. And Amos 4 is about the 30th time that I saw it come up. But Amos 4, here's what's going on. Here's the context of Amos 4. is that God was speaking specifically to the women of Israel. And this is one of the only times that God admonishes specifically his women. And I want you to listen to what he says in Amos 4.1. God's speaking to the women of Israel. And he says, hear this word. You cows of Bashan. And so God, God calls his women the cows of Bashan. Now, true story. Years ago, I preached this, and there was some article. Somebody heard it somewhere and wrote an article about this, and it says, Matt Carter, pastor of the Austin Stone, calls women of Austin Stone cows. Now, look, don't write an article. I'm not calling you cows. 
God is calling the women of Israel the cows of Bashan. All right, we clear on that? And so, but he's not, he's not just being mean. He's not calling them cows just to be mean. He's, he says the cows of Bashan. And the cows of Bashan were this specific kind of cow. They lived um, in the area north of the Sea of Galilee in Samaria. And these were cows that were known for their beauty. And they were known for their fatness, which was a positive thing back in the day. And um, they were known, they were just these white, beautiful, fat cows that just laid up in the grass and just sat there all day. Now, why does God look at the women of Israel and say, hey, you cows of Bashan? Why does he, why does he do that? Well, watch what he says. <clears throat> he says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria. Watch what he says. He says, who oppress the poor and crush the needy. And who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. And so he compares his women, the women of Israel, to these cows of Bashan. One, because the Lord said they were oppressing the poor. And they were using um, the poor for their own gain, the Lord says. That's number one. And two, instead of loving and caring for the poor and the needy, what God is saying is that these women were just laying up. And they were just lounging around, and they were calling for their husbands to bring them another drink. And that's why he compares them to them. He's basically saying that you guys are so busy going to, going to book clubs and dinner parties that you're not caring for and engaging with the poor and the needy and the oppressed that are all around you. And he calls them out for that. And then in Amos chapter 5, verse 11, you don't have to turn there, just watch. He begins to turn from... Uh, speaking to the women, and he starts speaking to the men of Israel, and he basically admonishes them for the exact same thing. Watch what he says in verse 11. <clears throat> he says, therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, you will not live in them. Though you have planted pleasant vineyards, you will not drink of their wine. And so he's speaking to the men of Israel. He basically says the same thing. He's like, look, you're imposing rent, a heavy rent on the poor. You're exacting a, a measure of grain from the poor, and you're taking that money, and instead of using it for their good, you're using it for your own good. You're taking the money from the poor, and you're using it to build big, fat houses for yourself. And God says, I have a problem with that. Now, church, you guys seeing a, a pattern here? God has, a, and it's all through the Old Testament, and it's all through the New, is that God has a serious problem when his people are seeking to live lives pursuing ease and comfort, and they're not engaging in the needs of the poor and the oppressed and the widow and the orphan that are all around them. And a few verses later, he says, Here's what's going to happen. Or basically, here's, God says, here's my response to the fact that you're just living your lives, you're building these big fat houses for yourself, you're laid up going to parties, and you're not engaging in the poor that is all around you. Here's kind of my response, God says. Look at Amos chapter 5, verse 21. This is one of the most haunting verses in all the Bible. God says to his people, he says, I hate and I despise your feasts. Okay, so they were still going to church. They were still coming and gathering in the name of the Lord regularly. And God says, watch this. He says, I hate and I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. The, the people were gathering together, having these solemn assemblies in the name of the Lord. And God says, I hate it when you do it. And I take no delight when you do it. That phrase there, can we leave that up? Can we put that verse back up? When God says, I, I, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. That phrase, take no delight, in the Hebrew, in the original language, carries with it the idea of draining. And so God says, when you're gathering together and you're worshiping me, it drains me. Right? What, basically what it's saying, it would be like an introvert at a dinner party. You got any introverts in here? Raise your hand. All right? I'm one of them. How do you feel after a dinner party? You just want to go into your closet and suck your thumb. And that's what God is saying it's like, well, you guys, because you're ignoring the poor, when you guys get together and worship me, 
And it just drains me, wears me out. That's what God's saying. He goes on in verse 22. He says, even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Leave that up for just a second. Look at the phrase, you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, but I will not accept them. It's an interesting way that they translated that in the English because that phrase, I will not accept them, it carries with it the idea of something smelling bad. And so literally the idea of burnt offerings was, hey, we want to take, you know, this, this animal, we want to offer it as a burnt offering to the Lord, and the idea would be that God would smell the, the burning offering and it would be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And God tells them, hey, when you're coming together, and, and worshiping me, it drains me. And when you begin to offer me burnt offerings, they don't smell good, but they stink to me. You're ignoring the poor. You're ignoring the widow and the orphan. Your offerings smell bad to me. And then verse 23, haunting verse, God says, because of all this, he says, take away from me the noise of your songs. And to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. God says to him, look, you're singing to me. You're gathering together and you're singing these praise songs to me. But God says, I want you to know because you're ignoring the poor and the widow and the orphan and the needy around you. He says, you're singing to me, but all I'm hearing is just noise. He says, take away from me the noise of your songs. And in verse 24, he actually tells him what he wants. He says, here's what I'm looking for. Here's the kind of worship I'm looking for in verse 24. He says, but let justice roll down like waters. He's saying engage with these people that are being oppressed. Be for these people that are being oppressed. Wade into the story of these people that are being oppressed. Engage in the misery of these people that are being oppressed. God says all these other things you're doing are great and wonderful, but they wear me out when you don't do that. Guys, as a young church planner and as a young group of church leadership, that verse right there got our attention. Because in the early days of the Austin Stone, um, we had not, we weren't doing that. We weren't engaging with the needs of the poor. We weren't engaging with the needs of the city of Austin. We weren't engaged with the oppressed and the widow and the orphan and the needy in Austin. We were just showing up, and it was awesome. We were singing to God. We had, we had one of the most famous worship leaders on the planet, and people were coming from all over the place just to come and hear this guy lead worship. And it, we, we got a hold of this verse, and we stopped and said, now, wait a minute. Is this what we've become? And we become a church that loves to lift its hands and sing to God, but we are not walking out these doors and engaging in real worship. And you go, what do you mean, Matt, engaging in real worship? Well, the scripture tells us, and this is another foundation we're about to look at, that the worship that God is really looking for, yeah, he wants us to sing to him, but there's another kind of worship that God is looking for in your life. And let me read it to you. James chapter 1, verse 27. <clears throat> James says, religion, that word is also translated worship. James says, worship that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. And so James is about to tell us, when God is looking at our worship, this is the worship that God wants to see that is pure and it's undefiled. Watch what he says. He says, this is a, a, a worship, rather, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. God says, you want to know what pure worship looks like? You want to know what undefiled worship looks like? He says, keep yourself unstained from the world and engage in the needs of the least of your society. Okay, those are not my words. Those are God's words. And if that's true, what he said, and it is, then the opposite of that must also be true, and we need to hear that. The opposite of that must be true, that singing and serving and going to religious services, Austin Stone, apart from engaging with the needs of the poor and the oppressed and the widow and the orphan is impure. And it's defiled worship in the sight of our God. And so back in the day, man, we made a decision 
as a church that, yes, we're going to continue to value singing and worshiping God through music and through song. It's a, the Bible tells us to do that too, but we're not going to do it at the expense of the poor and the needy and the widow and the orphan and the oppressed that are all around us, okay? Last biblical foundation here that has led us to be a church that is for our city. And what comes from the words of Jesus himself. And these are one of, this, this is one of um, maybe the most difficult things that Jesus ever said. It's a tough thing that he says. And, and I want you to keep that in mind, number one. And number two, keep this in mind, that, that this story that I'm about to read is not a story. It's a prophecy of the future. And you're in this picture. I just want you to know this. He, he basically says that this is a picture, he's prophesying of the day when all the nations, that's ever, every person that's ever lived is going to be around his throne. And he's going to separate um, his sheep from those that are not his sheep. He calls them the goats. And so just know you are in this picture. And you're going to be on one side or the other. So just keep that in mind. Watch what he says here, Matthew 25, 31. This is Jesus speaking. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, so he's talking about his second coming and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all nations. He will separate people, one from another. So individually, he separates you. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, you're, you were a sheep, you were a goat, you were a goat, you were a sheep. And then he will place the sheep on his right. I got that wrong. You're a sheep, you're a goat. I'm sorry, I got that backwards. Maybe that made sense to y'all, right? But anyway, he will, say, uh, he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then watch what he says to the sheep. He says, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He looks at the sheep and he says, guess what? Boys and girls and men and women, you get to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And he's going to tell them why they're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And what do you think he's going to say? Do you think he's about to say to the sheep on his right, come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world because you went to church and sang worship songs and attended a small group Bible study? That's not what he says. you think maybe he'll say, come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world because when you were eight years old, you walked an aisle at, uh, at Christian summer camp and prayed a prayer and asked Jesus into your heart. That's not what he says. Watch what he says, Matthew 25, 34. <clears throat> then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for I was hungry. And you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was a stranger, or rather, I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous, we don't have this verse. It says, then the righteous are going to raise their hand and say, Jesus, when did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you hungry, bring you food? When did we see you thirsty and give you water to drink? When were you a stranger and we invited you in? And then Jesus turns to the sheep who was on his right and said, when you were doing that to the least of these, you were doing it to me. Now, let me just be really clear here. Let me ask you a question. Is, is, is Jesus saying that the way that we're saved... And the way that we enter the kingdom of, of heaven is by feeding the hungry and welcoming the stranger and clothing the naked and visiting the sick. No. The Bible is really clear that we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of works. It's a gift of God so that no man should boast. And so the only, listen, don't miss this. The only possible explanation of what this can mean 
is that those who are saved by grace through faith as a gift of God will feed the hungry. That those who are saved by grace through faith will clothe the naked. That those who are saved by grace through faith as a gift of God will welcome the stranger and will visit the sick and the prisoner. It's the only possible explanation is that the overflow of our salvation is that we're going to be people that engages with the least of these in our society. That's, that's the only thing it can mean. And then he turns and he speaks to those who are on his left. It's a haunting verse. Matthew 25, 41. <clears throat> and then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Prepared for the devil and his angels. Just side note here, I believe in hell because Jesus believed in hell. And he speaks about it clearly right here. He says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed. Enter into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Why are they going to enter into the eternal fire? He says, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me in. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And the unrighteous are going to look at him and go, Jesus, when did we see you? Naked, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When were you a stranger? And we didn't do any of those things. And Jesus was going to say, when you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it for me. Again, I'm going to say this one more time. Those aren't my words. Those are the words of Jesus Christ. And he tells us that one of the primary ways that we demonstrate that we are his people one of the primary ways that we show and that we live out our salvation is that we are a people that, yes, we walk into these doors and we sing and we worship and we hear sermons and we, and we study the Bible and we live in Christian community together, but we go out the doors and we engage with the needs of our city. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I want to be on his right hand on that day. Now, last thing here, one, one final motiv motivation that we've had as a church to be for our city is not just biblical. Even the, the Bible is enough. The Bible is crystal clear. There's others I could have gone into today, but for sake of time, I'm not. Bible's good enough, but there's one kind of church that we've looked at historically that has been the church that we've modeled. I was asked years ago when I was planting the stone, what's the model that you're going to plant the church after? Because back in the day, you had to have a model. Back in 2000, when I was getting ready to plant, they were like either model Saddleback in, you know, or Willow Creek in Chicago or, or North Point, Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah, I got to follow one of those models. And I looked at them, and, and I was like, you mean I got to have a model? And they're like, if you want to get funded, you got to have a model. And I said, all right, here's a model for you. Metropolitan Tabernacle, London, 1850s. They're like, who is that? I was like, Charles Spurgeon. You heard of him? And they're like, yeah, we heard of him. I was like, that was his church. That was what we modeled the Austin Stone after. I fell in love with Charles Spurgeon back in seminary, and um, he was just—he was probably the best preacher maybe that's ever lived beside Jesus, and uh, just just absolutely began to study this guy and follow his life and learn about him. And a couple of years ago, Aaron Ivy and I decided that we wanted to—we were going to write a novel about Charles Spurgeon's life, and so. We got together and were like, okay, we're going to do this. And, and we, got the, we got signed off from, from Brahman and Holman, and they, they picked it up. And so we have this novel that we're going to write of historical fiction about Charles Spurgeon. So Aaron and I started reading everything we could get our hands on about him. And we actually went to Midwestern Seminary one day, and we uh, met with the top Spurgeon scholar of, in the country. And we're just asking him questions. And he told us the story that that he kind of knew a little bit about, but he said it's not very well known. Not many people know about this. He told us a story about a friendship that Charles Spurgeon had with a former slave named Thomas Johnson. And Aaron and I began to, we, we bought Thomas Johnson's book. It's called 21 Years a Slave. And here's the quick version of Thomas's story. Thomas was born into slavery in Richmond, Virginia. He lived 21 years as a slave there on a tobacco plantation near Richmond. 
He absolutely hated his captors. He was beaten multiple times, lived in horrible conditions. He wanted more than anything in the world to experience freedom. Thought about every day escaping. That's all he thought about. And one night, it's an incredible, incredible story. He, he showed up. Uh, they were having secret worship. The, the, the slaves were having secret worship because the plantation owner wouldn't let them. Uh, worship, and so they'd gather together at night, in the middle of the night, and they would they would just preach kind of in whispers, and they would sing in whispers, so nobody would hear them, and Thomas just kind of found his way to this worship service, and he radically gets saved, he becomes a Christian, and he talks about how the freedom that he'd always longed for, he found in Jesus Christ, and he made the decision that he wanted to become a missionary to Africa. He's like, if I ever get off this stinking plantation, I'm gonna leave and I'm gonna get educated and I'm gonna go to Africa and tell my people about this freedom I found in Jesus Christ. Well, it happened. He received his freedom. The, the day that Richmond, Virginia fell to the Union Army, he was freed. And he went about trying to discover how can I become educated to become a missionary because he really couldn't even read or write at that point. And one night on the plantation, he had heard about this guy named Charles Spurgeon. He was, he, was, he, was in the, he was in what they called the big house, and he was serving dinner one night to a bunch of southern aristocrats and military leaders, and those guys were sitting around the table talking about this fat, pompous Englishman named Charles Spurgeon that had the audacity to preach against slavery because that's what Spurgeon was doing. He was in England preaching against the evils of slavery, and Spurgeon had like 250,000 sermons circulating a week in the United States, everybody loved Spurgeon. When he began to uh, uh, preach against the evils of slavery, or preach rather, um, about the evils of slavery, everybody started burning his books and burning his sermons, and they were all sitting around the table talking about this Englishman that they hated so much because he was speaking against slavery. And Thomas Johnson thought, who in the world is this guy? He was like, he literally thought, you mean to tell me there's actually a white person that cares about me? Because he'd never met one. And so when he received his freedom, he began to seek out how he might meet this Charles Spurgeon, who was one of the most famous men in the world. He had a friend that actually knew Spurgeon. And so the friend wrote Spurgeon a letter and said, hey, I've got this guy. He's a buddy of mine. He's a former slave. He just got freed. He wants to be a missionary in Africa. Can he come to England and be trained at Spurgeon's college? And Spurgeon wrote a letter and simply responded, let the dear man come. And so Thomas, through a long story, was able to sail across the Atlantic, and he made it um, to Spurgeon's College, and he became the, the very first African-American to ever attend Spurgeon's College. I got a picture of him here. This is a snapshot that I took with my uh, camera. Can y'all bring that up? Um, this is, I took this with my iPhone. That's him. He got some killer hair. Y'all with me? And um, Aaron and I actually released our book at Spurgeon's College a couple years ago, and we walked into a room in Spurgeon College, and there he was, uh, Thomas L. Johnson, and so we just took that picture. But here's what's fascinating. You can bring that down. Here's what's amazing to me is that Spurgeon was arguably the most famous man in the world at that, at that point. You could make an argument that this was the most famous man in the world. He was absolutely at that time a celebrity. People adored him, and yet Spurgeon took this man who had spent his entire life in slavery, and Spurgeon not only took the radical step of accepting him into his college, but he personally trained him for ministry. He personally raised support for him. He personally preached Thomas and his wife's commission service at Metropolitan Tabernacle, and they developed through that a friendship that became incredibly close, and those two men were friends till the day that Spurgeon died. And again, here, here's Spurgeon, arguably the most famous man that's ever lived, arguably the, the greatest preacher that, that ever lived, but his life was full of those kinds of stories. Just as seriously as he took his call to preach, he took the call of the words of Jesus and Matthew that said that we must engage in the least of these. And what's cool is he also taught his church to do that. London in the late 1850s was a time of incredible, incredible poverty. Industrialization was sweeping into London, and so people were leaving farms by droves and coming to the city, and so the number of widow and orphan and poor 
were just skyrocketing. And when a lot of churches were running to the suburbs, Metropolitan Tabernacle made the decision, we're going to stay right here in the middle of London, and we're going to be for our city. And so they, they, they did something about it. They began an orphanage. They began an orphanage that housed 400 abandoned children. They took care of them. They, they raised money for them. They housed them. They educated them. And by the way, that orphanage still exists today. How many ever years later that, that, that is? Pretty cool. They started 12 old folks' homes where elderly people, fully funded, where elderly people could come and be clothed and fed and cared for in, in their dying years. They started a book fund to provide poor and rural pastors with quality theological education. They bought and fully funded multiple homes, dozens of homes for single mothers to raise their children in dignity and be educated. And that's four or five examples. I could give you 20. I could go on and on and on and on. And here's the thing. They weren't just in their city. And they certainly weren't against it and they weren't with it. They were for it. And such, hear this, I'm almost done. Such was their influence in the city of London in the late 1800s that it was said of them that if Metropolitan Tabernacle would have closed their doors and stopped being a church, that the city would have grieved. Now you think about that for a second. That such was their influence. Yes, they preached to thousands a week. Thousands a week heard the name of Christ. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people Trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior, but such was their engagement in the city that if they would have just shut their doors one day, the city would have raised their hands and said, please don't do that. Wouldn't it be amazing, Austin Stone, if that were said of us? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be amazing if we were that kind of church that we were so known for the way that our people loved and engaged and the needs of our city, that if we were ever say, hey, we're done, we're going to shut the doors, that the city would raise their hand and say, no, please don't do that. Are we going to be a church that keeps Jesus as our first love? Absolutely. Are we going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ as our aim? The answer is yes. Are we going to continue to care about the salvation of souls in the city of Austin? Yes, 100%. But at the same time, we're going to do those things through the preaching of the gospel and the seeking of the shalom of our city. I want to show you a quick video of a young lady, a single woman at our church, and the story of her taking the words of Jeremiah, the words of Amos, the words of Jesus, and living them out. It's pretty incredible. Watch this. People have asked, how do you love a kid that comes into your home? What's the balance of if you don't know they're gonna stay? And I think it's really tempting to just do minimal care and not let yourself become attached because it seems like it would be less painful when they leave. I look in the scripture and say, that's not like how Jesus has loved us. I am called to lay down my life for these guys no matter how long they're in my home. from being a single woman to fostering as a single woman overnight has been the hardest thing I've ever done. I mean, I knew it was going to be hard. Definitely had some fears. You know, I think just practically, like, wondering, uh, could I do this as a single parent? You know, I had fears about financially, would I be able to, to make this happen? And then I think there's just so much unknown. Like, you don't know the type of trauma the kid would have come from or endured. You don't know their story. You don't know how they're going to act. You don't know how long they're going to be there. I think there were just so many unknowns that had a lot of fears about what it was actually going to look like. But I just knew that this was what the Lord was telling me to do. So I just kept praying about it and walking forward. You know, my ideal world was like one preschool, elementary school kid that's around the same age as all my friends' kids. Um, so we can kind of do life together. But I think I just thought being a children's minister, like this kind of fits in even with my job. When the agency called, she said, we have a special case. We have a sibling set and there's one in your age range. And she said, the other one's 14, one's 11. 
even though these boys were older and there were two of them, this was not what I had planned for. I felt the Lord was leading me to, um, to say yes to these boys. So, so I did. I remember when they pulled in the driveway the first time, watching these two brave boys get out of the car and walk up to this crazy lady's house. Next to her had on a polo, it was buttoned all the way up. It was green, and he came up and shook my hand, introduced himself, very formal. Um, Jeremiah didn't make eye contact with me, was a little more shy, but to be expected. I think it really hit me when the caseworker left, and it was just me and the boys, and being like, okay, I'm in charge. I suddenly am a parent to you know uh, two junior high boys, and I don't know what I'm doing. The first couple of weeks that the boys had moved in was kind of like a honeymoon phase. I was off of work. My parents were able to come in town. It was around Christmas. We had lots of fun happening. For a while, they had you know, done their best to put their best foot forward, and I had put my best foot forward, and about three or four months in, there was the real us. Their real behaviors and their real fears and um, what they really thought of the situation really started to emerge, and so that was really hard to just walk through that with them and just not even know. I mean, there's still so much of them I didn't know or understand. It was probably April or May, so the boys have been with me just since that December, so just five months or so. Their attorney came over and sat all of us down, told us that Dexter's biological dad had come back into the picture. Um, he lived in Houston and he wanted custody. And I think all of us were just really insecure about what the future would hold. There was a lot of uncertainty ahead. And then August 5th, um, the boys moved out. I think I laid on the couch for like three days. Um, every, you know, people say their worst fear about foster care is having to let someone go. I, I, I mean, that is what happened. It was just really hard to adjust back from being a parent to now being single, um, and I was really concerned for the boys. I think one of the things that really helped me during that period of time um, was knowing that God is sovereign over our stories, and that if those eight months of them being with me was what he had planned, then they got to you know, be loved. Um, they got to see what family uh, looks like. They got to see what community should look like. Um, they got to be a part of a church that taught the gospel. And so I just had to cling to that. It was like daily reminding myself of that. Communication was kind of sparse for a while. Um, and I remember it was October and I asked them what they were doing for Halloween. And Dexter kind of was able to share just how bad things were going and said he wanted to run away. The attorney quickly made a trip down there, found out that things were not going well, and removed the boys pretty quickly. I remember Dexter called me and he asked, Becca, can we come home and will, will you adopt us? And um, I sure were thinking, yes, but I didn't know like legally what the scenario was gonna be. Um, what was gonna happen with custody. And so I told him, yes, you can always come back here. You always have a place in my house, no matter what happens. And I remember hanging up the phone and every part of me wanted to say yes to them, but the other part of me was like, man, I never thought that I would be adopting in two teenage boys at this point. And so I just started thinking of all the implications that would mean for my life. Boy, if I have two teenage boys as a single mom, like, I. I don't think marriage is gonna be something that happens anytime soon, which is a dream that like I'd love, but the Lord had bigger plans and I sure be like, yep, this is what it is to follow Jesus. Like it means that I lay down the things that I want and trust him with them and say yes and follow wherever he goes. Can we get 
because you have petitioned this court to grant the adoption to make sure you are legally and finally and forever mom. Yes. Now, are they already your boys? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So you're asking <laughs> the judge to make it legal. Yes. Forever. And no more foster care paperwork. <laughs> of the, the harder side of foster care and adoption that isn't talked about often, but that is uh, really hard um, and it costs a lot. But in the midst of that, I'm able to look at that and be like, that was just like Jesus taking up his cross and following, you know, what his father asked him to do. You know, we as foster and adoptive parents can do the same, um, knowing that it will very well cost us our life. We love because he first loved us. And so I'm going to love them with all that I have. And loving them like that, no matter how long they're with me, will give them a picture of Christ's love. Oh man, isn't that good? In light of the way that the Lord has loved us and he has loved us with a great love. We're going to be a church that loves him. We're going to love the Lord. We're going to love the local church. We're going to love our city. How else could we respond? How else could we respond? I don't know what that's going to look like for you. It's going to look different for every single person in the sound of my voice today. But here's my challenge to you. Ask the Lord. Say, God, where do you want me to engage? What do you want this to look like for me? And you keep asking, you keep praying until he tells you. And then when he tells you, you let your answer be yes. Let's pray together. Father, sometimes we forget just how unbelievable the cross was. What you endured, what you gave up. To leave heaven and to come to earth, put on our flesh and hang on a cross, be separated from your heavenly father so that we could be made sons and daughters of the king. God, how else can we respond to that kind of love? We respond with open hands and an open heart and a mouth that says, God, I'll do whatever you call me to do. Lord, give us the strength to do that. And give us the strength to demonstrate your love to our city and to the world in the years that we have left. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand together. Let's worship God.